So if you're able to, uh, please, please turn to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Last week, we covered 6, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The big context of this whole uh, incredible verses are basically reminding the Corinthian church who they are in Christ, what the gospel is. Remember last week's sermon title is Gospel Amnesia? Right? The Corinthians were experiencing some gospel amnesia. They forgot who they were in Christ. And therefore, they're suing one another, taking advantage of one another, extorting one another, taking each other to court. It was crazy. And so Paul was reminding the Corinthians who they were in Christ. And Corinth was a very interesting place. I mean, this was, this was I don't know what our equivalent will be today. It was beyond Las Vegas, okay? Corinth had its own term where if you're accused of Corinthianizing, that means you're living a debauched, drunken lifestyle. Because this is what was normal. In Corinth, it was normal to be sexually immoral. In Corinth, it was normal to cheat one another and extort one another. In Corinth, it was normal to gossip and slander one another to gain social status. It was just normal. It was just understood. This is what the Corinthians did. I mean, self-promotion was huge. Selfishness was huge. This is where coveting and stealing became part of the culture. They just understood this is how you did it. You care for yourself and you do whatever, you, whatever it takes to gain, uh, have personal gain. Self-gratification was huge. Aphrodite was a goddess of love. Right? This is one of the false gods that they worship, Aphrodite. Therefore, this is a partying culture, a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. Clubbing culture, perhaps, for today. Sexually immoral. Incest was being addressed in chapter 5. Cheating on your husband or wife, or, or probably your wife, was very much accepted. Homosexuality was rampant, and this was an accepted practice in Corinth. So these things didn't shock the Corinthians. It was normalized. It was institutionalized, even, you know, in how they did their uh, law, uh, law courts and their... Uh, Practices of worship in the temple of Aphrodite. So the Corinthians needed a reminder. This is what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is the big reminder that Paul's giving them. So if you're able to, please rise and, and, and read along with me. This is, the, this, is the, this is God's word that we have in our hands. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 10, and 11. Paul reminds them. Or do you not know? That the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Question mark. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, verse 10, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. Such were some of you. But you are washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help. I pray that your spirit would allow me to preach your word truthfully, powerfully, lovingly. Father, I pray your spirit would allow us to ingest your word and allow your word to be embedded into our hearts so that we would love your son more and become more like him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat, everybody.
Today, the topic is a heavy topic. It's very uh, relevant. It's a, it's a topic that's everywhere. Social media, media, entertainment, even commercials that you hap, uh, happen to uh, drop in on is the topic of homosexuality and the gospel. Homosexuality is a big topic today. And you may be asking, Pastor, why are you preaching on homosexuality today? Well, number one, it's the cultural climate and the current is relentless. I mean, the current, the flow has reached torrential levels where we're constantly inundated by this idea that homosexuality is an accepted, normalized thing in our culture. Constantly bombarded. You can't escape the barrage of information that's being put out there, especially if you're on social media. Secondly, the homosexuality has been institutionalized and normalized in our culture. What do I mean by that? It, it's, it's affected academia. The idea of homosexuality has been all over media and entertainment and song and movies and television shows. Even in the sports world, it's been affecting the sports world as well. Politics, schooling for our youth, curriculums being set up. Legislation has been set up as well. Even in medicine, redefining things, redefining what was normally understood for 2,000 years as being acceptable. Even the Pope, we're not Catholic, but even the Pope is talking about same-sex marriage. Seminaries such as Fuller and Pasadena has fallen away. They've had, they have chaplains who affirm same-sex unions. And also the church. The church. The culture is seeping into the church globally and also locally. 2020 has been a year that's been challenging me. The Lord's been confronting me. And he, I haven't heard any audible words, but by circumstances, the Lord has been challenging me. How serious are you about pastoring? How serious are you about pastoring? As we've talked about publicly already, about Evergreen LA's decision to, to go that route of affirming gay marriages. Just a few weeks ago, I'm up in Washington visiting family and friends, and, and family members have come to me and said, Rocky, could you look at this message? Their church has gone that way, where their pastors declared that homosexuality being a sin is a myth. So the Lord is constantly, for whatever reason, bringing these issues to me. And I got a lot going on, as you guys could imagine. This is a a full work here at Evergreen. It's a worthy work. But the Lord is confronting me. How serious are you, Rocky, about pastoring? So our church, we must be clear how to engage with homosexuality. So that's that question we're going to be asking today. How are we to engage with homosexuality? That's the question, brothers and sisters. Paul starts off here, verse 9, says, Do you not know? So Paul's acting as a reminder, just like last week. Do you not know? Do you not know? This is common sense. This is common knowledge. Do you not know? Paul is reminding us today through Corinthians 6, 9, 10, 11. First point. How are we to engage with homosexuality? Remember that homosexuality is a sin. Fill in the blank, sin, S-I-N. Now note, I didn't say it's the sin. It's a sin, a sin. The Bible says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
This is a very serious thing, the unrighteous. This, the, this word carries the meaning of the unjust, the wrong, the evildoer, the sinful person, the wicked. The sinner will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is serious. At the end of the day, when the Lord comes to judge us all, this is all that matters. Are you in the kingdom of God? Did you and I inherit the kingdom of God? This is so critical that we understand this. And who are the unrighteous? According to Paul in Corinth, well, he goes through a laundry list of sins in verse 9 and 10. But Paul is a very specific pastor. He, he calls out the unique sins that they were struggling in in Corinth. And let me give you an idea of this. In Galatians chapter 5, if you, want, you could turn there with me if you want. Right before the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 19, 20, and 21, Paul gets very specific with the Galatian church. Galatia was located in Turkey, all right, in Asia, a different continent, uh, other side of the water from, from Corinth. But let me just read you their list of sins that would keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God. Paul writes, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, all right, these are sinful things, which are immorality, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, things of the sexual nature, idolatry, not supposed to worship any idols, sorcery, they had issues of witchcraft and things of the occult, that was a big deal in Asia Minor, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, a lot of division amongst the brotherhood and sisterhood at Galatia, envying, drunkenness, same, similar, carousing and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not, hear this now, it's a quote again from Corinthians, similar line, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is very specific. So in this list of sins that Paul's talking about here in Corinth, he's being very specific. This is not an exhaustive list covering every issue known to mankind, but these are the prevalent things that were normalized and accepted. Let me just read them again. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, these are the unrighteous. These are people who practice sex outside of the covenant of marriage. These are, these are uh, people who... For us, today and day, you're having premarital sex. This is people who are watching pornography. God looks at the heart, the Bible says. All right? Nor idolaters. These are people who worship things, created things above God. All right? Nor adulterers. We know what that means. You're cheating. You're not faithful to your wife. Like I said, I would say pornography is part of that too. God looks at the heart. Nor effeminate. Nor homosexuals, we'll cover that, this in a moment what, more deeply in these words. Nor thieves, people who steal, that a stealing problem because they want to gain from one another. Nor covetous or the greedy, they're very materialistic. Corinth was very affluent. Nor drunkards, like I said, there's a big partying culture there. Nor revilers, these are people who, who gossip and, 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 and uh, talk bad about one another, creating division. Nor swindlers, these are people who extort and cheat each other for money, will inherit the kingdom of God. This is Paul's list that was specific to the Corinthians. Now Paul is very specific, and I believe that he does this graciously because he doesn't want us to miss a point. If you're in Corinth, I'm calling it out as it is. Don't you want that to be done? Like, hey, be specific, pastor. 
What are you confronting with me with? Is this sin in general? No, no. These, yes, but these are specific things that are mastering you in Corinth. Effeminate. Some effeminate. This word, it means soft. Malikos. This is soft. This literally is talking about the passive member in a homosexual act. All right? I'm trying to be very discreet about this. We, we got mixed company here. Homosexuals. This is talking about the sodomite, the active member in a homosexual act. So in no unclear terms, Paul's making it clear, this is what I'm talking about. This is very descriptive. I believe he's being very specific because he doesn't want the church of Corinth to miss the point, nor us 2,000 years later. And in your Bible, you know, the ESV, the NIV, they combine the words, ESV says men who practice homosexuality, they just combined it to NIV says men who have sex with men. So that's a combined. The NASB that I have breaks it down to the two exact Greek words that are there. Now, Paul's being very specific, and I believe because he loves the Corinthian church. He doesn't want the Corinthian church to miss it. Now, what is Paul talking about? If I, if I have sinned one time in these areas, I'm done, or if I'm in a struggle. No, Paul's talking about unrepentant, willful sin, meaning... God is good with this. I'm not going to change. This is God is good with this. This is what Paul is talking about. We're not talking about temptation here, brothers and sisters. I know what that's like. I'm tempted constantly. I know you're tempted constantly. We're not even talking about even sinning, stumbling from time to time. I sin. We're talking about unrepentant, willful, God is okay with this. There's a tension in every Christian, amen? There's a fight within all of us. To the day we die, our thought life is the battleground that's going to be fought over constantly. There's a tension here. Martin Luther, I was talking to Pastor Victor, he helped me out, he pointed me to this quote, which I remembered as well. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, meaning temptation. You cannot keep the birds from flying over your head. But you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. All right, that's not the reason why I shaved my head, but, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right? You, you don't want to have it take, take root in your life, have mastery over your life, have, make a home. Let the birds make a home in your heart. This is what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about just like you, you fall into temptation, then, okay, God, is, you're out of the kingdom of heaven. That's not it. There's three levels. Just if you want to take these notes on temptation, lust, and action. Let's be specific in the area of sexual purity. We're all going to be tempted. 99% of us, I would guess, are going to be tempted this way. That's a temptation. You can't avoid it. This is, we live in a sinful world. The enemy wants to get after us, and we're constantly flooded with all kinds of images and media. Just even a click, you, you're going to fall into a trap. We understand this. There's temptation. But also, the next level is lust. Next level is action. Let's make sure, brothers and sisters, that we keep temp- sexual temptation where it's at. And we're just in this tension. No, Lord, I don't want you. Lord, help me with this temptation. Do not sit under lust. Don't play those tapes in your head, brothers. Don't play those tapes in your head. Certainly let's not act on them. 
But the battleground is in our minds and our hearts. Amen? And this is where the culture is trying to institutionalize and normalize homosexual orientation. This is the issue, guys. Where they're trying to make it into an identity, an immutable identity. This is who I am. I can't change. This is how God made me. Therefore, I just need to act on who God made me to be. This is what the LGBTQ plus movement's all about. They're trying to make it an identity. You're trying to even equate that to ethnic race. For, it's amazing how they're trying to do that. This is how God made me. And this is, we're bombarded by this. I mean, it's at an all-time high, at a feverish pitch right now. It's relentless. It is absolutely unrelenting. So, Pastor, why are you teaching on this? We know this. Well, this is a question I need to ask. Is homosexuality a secondary issue? Like, can Christians agree to disagree on this topic, in other words? Some pastors will say yes. These pastors that I've talked to, personally, some of, one of them said yes. It's just a secondary issue. We're not going to divide over this. Well, evidently, when the scripture says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That clearly tells me this is a primary issue. Christians, we need to be clear about this for our own sanctification, but also leading others to Christ. Repentance is absolutely core to salvation. If we're not calling people to repent of our sinful ways, whether it's drunkenness, whether it's bursts of anger, whether it's greed or gossip, slander, or homosexuality, or fornication, there is no call for the gospel then. We have to come to Christ on His terms. Remember, He says the kingdom of God. He is the king of the kingdom of God. We are invited into His kingdom, His terms, His conditions. That's point number one. Homosexuality is a sin. Not the sin, as if unforgivable sin. It is a sin. But it's clear that it is a sin. How are we to engage with homosexuality? Point number two. Remember to not be deceived. The word fill in the blank is deceived. I've, I've dialogued with various people. I've dialogued with various professing Christians who said... You know what, 10 years ago, I didn't think this was a big deal, but now, I mean, it was, it was a big deal, but now I don't know if it's as bad of a deal anymore. 10 years ago. Why does it feel more so acceptable, these sort of things, right? I'm sure you've heard these things. The Bible says, do not be deceived. Paul writes, do not be deceived. Planao, that means misled. That means cause to wander off the path, lead astray. Bible says, do not de be deceived. Do not be deceived. And how the deception begins, you got to start with Satan. John 8, 44 says this, he is the father of lies. Revelation 12, 9 says he deceives the whole entire world. This is his mission, to be a deceiver. He is behind all the deception. There is an agenda to deceive people from coming to Christ. 
Do not be deceived, the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, the serpent deceived Eve. This is how he operated right from the very beginning. So I'm gonna, let's just go down this journey a little bit. Let's go back into history, biblical history here, Genesis 3, to find out how he actually did it. How did he do this? How did he deceive Eve? Well, Genesis chapter 3 says this. You could turn there too if you want. Genesis 3. This is a very foundational teaching here on how Satan works. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. This is the fall. This is when sin was introduced into, man, into uh, to mankind. Before that, there was no issues of these things that Paul was talking about. After this, the floodgates opened up. Sin was introduced. This is where the first sin came. This is original sin. And Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 says this. This is how Satan works. Now the serpent was more crafty. Crafty. That means he was deceitful. He was sneaky. He's cunning. He fooled Eve. Then any beast of the field which the Lord God made. All right? And look, how does Satan deceive Eve? And he said to the woman, indeed has God said. That's it right there, brothers and sisters. Indeed has God said. He, Satan, attacked God's word. He questioned God's good word. Has he, did he really say you're not supposed to eat of this tree? Did he really say that? Has God said? How about today? Has God said that God really literally make the, the entire universe of six literal days? Has God said that Jesus is the only way to salvation? Has God said that Jesus is actually God? Has God said that, that Jesus died and resurrected from the grave? These are what all the cults have said. These are all the false religions have said. They have attacked God's word. They all many of them acknowledge Christ, but they attack Christ. Has God said men and women have distinct roles in the church and in at home? Has God said? Some things are so clear. While Satan's work is, has God said? And then let me just read on here. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. God never said you can't touch it, but she adds that in there. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You see that? God, God is attacked by Satan, by Satan attacking his word, saying, "Has God? did God really say that? Did God really mean that? And then when you stand firm on it, Satan says to Eve, you won't die, you'll be fine. And Eve was deceived. And then Adam willfully sinned after that. Remember, brothers and sisters, the scriptures, the word of God is what we have to know divine revelation. The scriptures, the Bible is the clearest, only reliable way of knowing that you're hearing from God. You may get a thought, you may get an impression, but you don't know that for God for certain as you do if you, when you read it from the scriptures. The scriptures is the light that leads our way. So when we lose the scriptures, we lose all of that. The scriptures is the inerrant. That means without error. Sufficient. That means that you, to, you, the Bible has everything you need to know about God and, and to, for, for salvation and sanctification. And the authoritative word of God. That means Christ. When we call him Lord, this is how he rules us. We read the scriptures and we obey it. 
There's a power in the word. And for 2,000 years, the church has understood this. And over time, the enemy has crept in to try to undermine, undercut God's word. This is what, how Satan operates. And this is how his false teachers operate as well. Jeremiah 23, 15 to 17. Right, you can write that down as a reference. Jeremiah 23 chronicles false prophets. And the false prophets, they, verse 16 says that they speak lies. They speak of their own imagination. This is not God's ideas. This is your own idea, the Bible says. Verse 17 says they claim to speak for God. This is the Lord has said. This is what the false teachers have acted in, like in the Old Testament. The Lord has said. And they say they basically claim that, you know what? You could be in rebellion against God. You're not going to face judgment. Verse 17, they, the, the Lord has said, you will not face calamity. You could be stiff-necked still. You, don't, you could still rebel against God. You will be fine. And I'm just, just to share with you, I mean, this basically what false teachers do. They twist the scriptures and tell you it's going to be okay. And I've, I mentioned to you these two churches, Evergreen LA, which is, which is related to us because they church planted us, right? I mean, this is where we split off from. Same thing what their pastor says. This, has God really said that this is not okay? This is going to be okay, guys. You guys will be fine. Roy's from Washington, same thing. Has God said, this is not what it means. This is just meant for the time 2,000 years ago. Has God said, and by the way, you'll be fine. God loves you the way you are. You'll be fine. You're not going to receive judgment. Has God said? Satan hasn't changed his game plan at all. It's the same exact thing. Same exact thing. And how do they come up with this type of idea? For 2,000 years, the church has accepted this truth that homosexuality is a sin. Not an unforgivable one, but a sin. This is what it is. How does this happen? Well, I did some research. I want to make sure I understand this as well as I can. In the early 1980s, most of us are alive at that time. I was alive at that time. In the early 80s, guys, somehow... We must have gotten smarter over 2,000 years of church history. In the 1980s, a man named John Boswell, who's a Harvard grad, a Yale professor, came up with this idea that 1 Corinthians 6, 9 uh, through uh, 9 is talking about an area of effeminate and homosexual. He's talking about, this is talking about male prostitution is prohibited. All right? In the 80s as well, a man named Robin Scroggs, who worked at a seminary, said this is talking about pederasty. What is pederasty? Older men sodomizing young boys. Obviously, yes, male prostitution is a sin. Obviously, pederasty is a sin. But this is broader. This is much broader. And so when I have spoken to these pastors, they tell me the same thing. Perhaps this is the origin where they learned this sort of idea to fit their theology. And then what's crazy is that, you know, the idea is that 
as long as you're monogamous, you're, 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 you're faithful with consenting unto all, God is good with it. God will not judge you. You'll be fine. It sounds like the false teachers from Jeremiah 23. Now, how do we address this? How have I addressed this? I want to be accountable to you, church family. I want to be accountable to, uh, to my charge here as a, as, as, as a pastor, similar to how Pastor Marco was charged. I, I, I committed to these things as well. Number one, go to God's word. All right, Just go to God's word. Read it for yourself. What does the plain reading of the scripture say? It, se- it seems very clear to me here. It seems very clear to me that this is a sin. What does the scriptures have to say? Number two, you don't have to write this down, but I'll say analogia scriptura. This is some of my mentors, my teachers talk about how the scriptures must be compared with one another. The scriptures explain the scriptures. The scriptures cannot contradict each other. Analogia scriptura. So meaning, you go to other parts of the scriptures to confirm, okay, this is what the interpretation is. Do not be deceived, the Bible says. Well, let's just go to the right from the beginning. Genesis 2.24, Bible says God made them male and female, and they became one. This is what marriage is between a man and a woman. This is a natural function between a man and a woman. How about Leviticus 18.22? I'll just give you some of these scriptures. You can study it more deeply on your own. Man shall not lie with another man. That's very clear what that's saying. How about Romans? Let's get to the New Testament. Romans 1, 26 and 27. God gave them over to what? To degrading passions. To unnatural functions. To commit indecent acts. God is not good with this. God is not good with this. Analogia Scriptura. What does the Scriptures have to say about any particular passage? Just cross-reference. Very simple things that any of us could do as long as you have a Bible. Pastors are shepherds. And I want to just say this. Pastors are shepherds. Pastors basically are called, the picture that we have is to shepherd the flock of God. And um, we're on the fields caring for the sheep, God's sheep, metaphorically. All right, God's people are God's sheep. And doing some research, sheep ranchers train specific sheep to do specific jobs. Sheep ranchers have trained a certain sheep in their flock to do one specific task. And this sheep is called the Judas sheep. Judas sheep, as in the one of the disciples that failed, the false, the false disciple. Sheep, you got to understand, sheep follow sheep. So these Judas sheep, they're trained to lead the other sheep into the slaughterhouse. That's what they do. And when the Judas sheep enters into the slaughterhouse, all the other sheep follow in. And the Judas sheep conveniently slips out a trap door and he gets to continue to do his work. There's Jude, all the, the slaughter ensues. Dead bodies are laying there. Dead sheep are there now. And this is what the Judas sheep does. This is his task. This is his role. Now, the Judas sheep, they look like sheep. They sound like sheep. They say 
veneer their ideas with Christian words. They'll proclaim Christ. They'll say we're being faithful. They'll say we open up the Bible. But they're not sheep. They're not sheep. They're not true shepherds. As Acts 20, 28, let me just read you this, too. This is kind of following up Pastor Mako's charge. Mako, pay attention. Verse 28, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseer to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, eating the flock. That is savage. And from among your own selves, from among yourselves, within the church, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Remember that nine days, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I mean, this fires me up. Mako, let's go. Let's go, pastors. This is what we're called to do. Any faithful pastor needs to do this. And the approach is this. You, we go to these people, these false teachers, and talk to them in the hopes of restoration. Pastor, do you realize that in James 3.1 that pastors will be judged with a stricter judgment? Do you realize this? Pastor, the Bible says in Titus chapter 1, reprove them severely so that they will be sound in the faith. These are the type of things that I've talked to these men about. In the hopes that 2 Timothy 2 talks about that there will be repentance, there will be restoration. This is a very serious thing, brothers and sisters, that we're encountering. This is a new day where people will claim to be biblical, claim fidelity, fidelity to the scriptures, and do the exact opposite. And twist the words, get overly academic in their own human wisdom, wisdom of the world that's Corinth, that's Corinth was filled with, so that they could say whatever they want to say to fit their theology. Serious business, serious business. So do not be deceived, church family. Third and final point: How are we to engage with homosexuality? Third and final point: This is the application. This is what I hope everybody here in person and online remembers. This is the deal here now. This is the issue that I want us to really be transformed with so we know how to respond properly to this issue. Point number three, how are we to engage with homosexuality? Remember that you were forgiven. Children, that's the key word, forgiven. Remember that you were forgiven. Forgiven. This is why Jesus came. I came to seek and save the lost. I lay down my life for the sheep, Jesus says. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, as I just dug deeper into this, is one of the most incredible three verses in the scriptures. Why? Paul is talking about the gospel. The gospel is here, 6, verse, chapter 6, 9, 10, 11. 9 and 10 basically chronicle the bad news. Sinners will be judged in hell. Sinners will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Sinners are out of the flock of God. Sinners are not in the family of God. This is bad news. This is bad news. That's 9 and 10. But verse 11 now is the start of the good news. 
Verse 11 is where you get fired up. The Bible says in verse 11, such were some of you. Such are some of you, the Bible says. He's talking to the whole church. Such are some of you who struggled in all these things. All these things used to identify you, Corinthian church. Every green SUV, such are some of you, me included. We were all in the same boat. We were all headed towards destruction. Me personally, I'm guilty of 70% of these things on the Corinthian list here. Either in action or minimally in thought. How many of those can you count for yourself? Yup, yup, yup. Maybe not done it, but I've been thinking it. How many of us can be guilt, called guilty of these? I, I think 70%, rough, rough, rough math there, but roughly 70% of these things, I am guilty of these things, at least in action or minimally in thought. But there was a big transition that took place. Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you are sanctified. But you are justified. But in word, past tense. God has done a work in us. Amen? This is what this is about. This is the gospel message. We were transferred out of darkness into light. We were blind, now we see. We were deaf, now we could hear. We were dead, now we are alive. Nicodemus asked the question, how can a man be reborn? And how can a man re-enter his mother's womb? It's not a physical thing. It's a spiritual transformation that took place. We were washed. That means we're purified. We were filthy. We had sin entangling us. Sin identified us at one time, but the Lord washed us clean. White as snow. Bible says we were sanctified. That means we were made holy. We were set apart to live as Christ will live. We were justified. We were one times, at one time guilty of sin. Declared guilty. No, 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 no. Got a new judgment. Innocent. Our new position before God, innocent. We're washed. We're sanctified. We're justified. All past tense. God has already done this for us. God has already done this for us. And this 1 Corinthians 5, 10, just backing up a little bit, or I'll go to 9. I'm going to just back up to the earlier chapter. 1 Corinthians 5, 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. Oh, so we're not supposed to uh, associate with homosexuals. Well, hold on. Let's read verse 10. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. See, brothers and sisters, when we understand the gospel that we were once in that same boat, we're headed to the slaughterhouse, we realize the homosexual community is our mission field. Amen? This is the group we're called to minister to, a group. There's other groups, but this is a group that we're called to minister to. Knowing that we were given new life, how can we be arrogant as the Corinthians were? How can we just be hateful as the Corinthians were? How can we not be humble? How can we not be loving? And this is what's consistent with our gospel identity. Paul's reminding the Corinthians, you were washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. The gospel message made you new. And such were some of you. And such are some of you. Does anybody come to mind right now? Do you have a co-worker? I've had co-workers. Do you, do you have a, someone in a neighborhood 
uh, in their neighborhood, someone down the street, family member, anybody, maybe a celebrity on, on television that comes to mind. Let's know that they're the mission field, brothers and sisters. We're called to love. We're called to love biblically. And in some ways, I commend the secular world for trying to encourage love. But there, and I appreciate that sentiment. I really do. But this is, knowing what we know, the gospel, that's not loving now. How could you usher someone into the slaughterhouse and feel good about yourself? That's not loving. That's not loving. Amen? Let me just read you one verse before I get there, though. Mark 115. I'm going to read you Mark 115. Matter of fact, I don't need to turn there. It's in my mind. Remember this. As we seek to love and embrace one another as friends, that's okay. That's a good thing. Let's seek to embrace each other as friends. Let's have meals together. That's okay. Let's share life together. That's okay. But be prepared. This is Jesus' first message, Mark 1.15. Behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Aren't we talking about the kingdom of heaven, right? Who couldn't inherit the kingdom of heaven? So repent and believe the gospel. Repentance is critical. You leave out the, the, the critical nature of having to repent of homosexuality to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Repent, Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. Brothers and sisters, present to your friends who may be struggling in this area. Christ is a better identity. He's a much better identity. He gives you life, life eternal. Now, in conclusion here, let me finish up here. As I was preparing this message, my heart was, was really thinking about those in our church family who may be struggling with this issue. My heart was drawn towards maybe parents who have children who are in this lifestyle. My heart was going towards those of us who have relatives and friends trapped in this lifestyle and this trapped in this way of thinking. I have a relative who's in that. But there's hope in the gospel. The hope in the gospel is here. Let me just read it for you at verse 11. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. How? How did God do this? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And how else? And in the spirit of our God. The message is Christ. The message is Christ. And God had a plan. This is a whole Trinitarian plan where God the Father had a plan. The plan was Christ, but also the third member, in the spirit of our God. The spirit is what gives us new life. The spirit is what gives us sight to see. Just like the blind man says, although I was blind, now I see. You pr present the gospel message and you pray and you intercede that the spirit of God will give this person new life. This is how it's done. And trust God for the results. It's up to God. And I know there's people here, this may be resonating right now. Let me just say this much, brothers and sisters. Share your burdens with one another. 
This is a new day. This is not where we are to keep it to ourselves because we feel an unbiblical sense of shame or guilt or whatnot. This is where we get to come together and share and bear one of those burdens. The responsibility is there. When someone has enough courage to share with you, what are you going to do with a brother or sister? Are you going to run after them and embrace them? Or are you going to turn your back? We're going to go after them and embrace them. That's what we're going to do. This is what we're called to do. This is consistent with the gospel. This is consistent with the gospel message. We're called to be intentional in our relationships to help each other become more like Christ. If someone shares his treasure with you, handle it delicately, lovingly, patiently. What a privilege. What a privilege that someone would trust you in that way to help disciple them. If you don't feel like you have someone like that in the church, contact me, email me, rseto at evergreensuv.org. Email me. I would love to talk to you. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to maybe get you connected. You're not in this alone, brothers and sisters. You're not alone in this. If there's a tension, there's a struggle, you're not alone in here. We're here to help one another. Today is a special Lord's Day. Not only do we get to uh, commission Pastor Mako, we're able to take communion. Communion is, a, is, is one of the two sacraments that we're able to observe. Baptism being one of them. And how about that? During the coronavirus, the quarantine, we're able to baptize four people. Praise God. That's huge. See what the Lord is doing in our church. The other sacrament that we're called to observe is Communion. Communion is the most unifying time in the life of Evergreen SGV for because every month, the first Lord's Day of the month, we affirm once again to our Lord and to one another that we believe in his sacrifice, that we've accepted his sacrifice. And so for once a month, we're able to look at each other. If you're in person here, whoever you're with online, if you're alone, know that we're all taking communion together at the same time. This is a very special and holy time. But remember this, brothers and sisters. Bible says in Corinthians to take communion in a worthy manner. That means if there's any unrepentant sin in your heart, let's repent. Let's come to the Lord's table with a pure heart. And if there's any unforgiveness that we have towards others, let's forgive them. And afterwards, throughout the week, let's reach out to them to reconcile. Amen? So right now, I'm going to pray. I'm going to thank the Lord for communion. And ask the Spirit to bring things to mind that we need to repent of or forgive others for. I'll leave some moment of silence. You pray in your heart, and I'll bring us back together and close us in prayer, and then we'll take communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy. All we have is the gospel, it's all we need. It's not complicated, it's very clear. And such were some of you, but we were washed, but we were sanctified, but we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and, the, and in the spirit of our God. So thank you that we get to take communion right now, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we will take communion in a worthy manner, that we're in good standing with the local church. Even if we're visiting and we're not part of this local body, if you are in good standing with your local church, we welcome you to take communion. 
But Lord, we want to take communion in a worthy manner. If there's any sin that we need to repent of, please bring this to mind. If there's any brother or sister that we need to forgive, please bring them to mind so we can forgive them. Brothers and sisters, do your business with the Lord in this, this brief moment of silence. Father, we thank you for these sincere prayers. We know that you forgive us, or you've forgiven us already, but we want to have close intimacy with you, Lord. And that's why we ask for forgiveness of these things. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, let's rise together in person, if you're able to. And at home, let's rise. Have your elements ready. So for those of us here, this tricky thing, you're right. We've got this little cellophane here. Let's pull that off. All right, and get to that wafer. As you're you're accessing your wafer, let me explain and remind us what this is about. The Lord said, in that night, he broke bread. And take this in remembrance of me, of Christ's body. Brothers and sisters, if you are taking this in a worthy manner, let's take this to remember our Lord's sacrifice on the cross. Now we pull off the foil for us in person for the juice, to access the juice. The Lord said in that night, that last supper, he took a cup and said, take this in remembrance of me for the blood that was shed for you. So brothers and sisters, and I get a great view here, guys, because I get to see everyone take this. This fires me up. I feel like, yes, this is incredible. This unifies me. Feel free. I sanction you. Particularly if you're here, to look around as you take this. This is not just you and God, this is you and God in the body of Christ. So I sanction you to look around. But let's take this cup in remembrance of the blood of Christ that was shed for us, that purchased the church on that cross in that day. Let's take this in remembrance of our Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let me just close in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time to take communion. Thank you for the opportunity to come together and affirm our love and commitment to you, Lord, in communion. Also, our love and commitment to one another. You're an awesome, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.